Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The School of Cleveland Ballet is now accepting auditions for both their trainee and summer intensive programs. Their trainee program is open to male and female dancers ages 18 to 22 and offers opportunities to perform alongside Cleveland Ballet at their home in Playhouse Square and in productions during their regional tours across Northeast Ohio. Cleveland Ballet's home theater complex Playhouse Square is the largest performing arts complex outside of Lincoln Center. School of Cleveland Ballet's summer intensive program is open to dancers ages 8 through 22. The program runs for four weeks where dancers will participate in daily classes in ballet, point, conditioning, modern, jazz, character, Spanish dance, and more. As part of the program, there is housing, food, and transportation available, as well as workshops in nutrition, injury prevention, makeup, and more. Auditions for both programs are by video and do not include any audition fees. Audition by March 31st, 2022 for the trainee program and by March 16th, 2022 for the summer intensive. Visit clevelandballet.org for complete audition and program info or click the links in the description of this episode. Before getting started today, we want to express that our hearts and prayers are with the people of Ukraine and those affected by the events of the past week. Our deepest sympathies are with those who have lost loved ones and those who have had their lives completely uprooted. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are joined by Carol Armitage, Artistic Director of the New York-based Armitage Gone Dance Company. Carol has had an extensive career as both a dancer and choreographer. She began her professional career in 1973 as a member of the Ballet du Grand Théâtre de Genève, under the direction of George Balanchine. In 1976, she was invited to join Merce Cunningham's company, where she remained for five years, performing lead roles in Cunningham's landmark works. She began her choreographic career in 1979, showcasing her unique voice in the dichotomy of classical and modern dance. Requests for commissions came in quickly once she started to create, from companies such as the Paris Opera Ballet, American Ballet Theatre, and other companies throughout Europe. 
1990, she choreographed Madonna's now iconic music video Vogue, and then went on to choreograph for Michael Jackson in the music video In the Closet. In 2004, she founded her own company, Armitage Gone Dance, which will be on stage this month at New York Live Arts. We caught up with Carol as she was at the studios between rehearsals to hear about her expansive career, stories of working with Balanchine and Cunningham, choreographing for two of the most prolific pop stars of all time, and about her company's upcoming shows. Don't miss A Pandemic Notebook at New York Live Arts, March 16th through 19th, 2022. Tickets are available at newyorkliveartsorg or click the link in the description of this episode. Carol, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, we've got a lot to get through with you. We've got quite the bio. So let's just go ahead and start at the beginning and um, get a little bit of background about how you first became interested in dance uh, at all. Yeah, well, I grew up half the year in Kansas in a small town, mm-hmm. Lawrence, and the other half the year in the wilderness of Colorado. So as far as one can imagine from being interested in ballet, but in Kansas, a woman came straight from New York City Ballet and opened a ballet studio. These were the days when Life Magazine, for example, had huge feature spreads. You would have Mm. 10 pages of New York City Ballet and glamorous ballerinas, and they were more glamorous than fashion models. So there was my desire to be in this glamorous world as well as just feeling like I wanted to know what it meant to be alive. I wanted to be an artist. I was just mm-hmm. instinctively drawn to that. Then right. crazily enough in Colorado, in the wilderness, um, there, they opened a ski resort when I was a young child, fairly near where we lived. And the wife of the ski instructor, they were Swiss, had been a ballet dancer. So I had private lessons in a woodshed. And then when I got a little older, I literally put point shoes in my backpack and hiked over a 13,000 foot mountain pass to go to Aspen, Colorado, where there was a month or six week long ballet intensive with Ballet West. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's a very unlikely beginning. <laughs> That's so wild. That's incredible. Well, at least you were warm by the time you got there after you hiked all that way. I stayed there for, you know, I know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's amazing. I love that. Yeah. So, so what sort of started taking you out of that um, unlikely beginning? When did you start well, to, to go I mean, to? Yeah, it was really very simple. It was, you know, everyone was telling my parents, you can't become a ballerina if you only take like one or two classes a week. You've got to do more. Mm -hmm, So my mother started driving me to Kansas City where I had a very tough Russian teacher, you know, the kind, well, I think was kind, but they beat you. (laughs) (laughs) And then there was this, you know, Ford Foundation, which had a program Mm. that went all over the country and looked for promising students and they saw me and brought me, I had a scholarship to come to New York and then did uh, school of American ballet for a summer. But then my parents were like, no way you're staying in New York. And by now I was 14. And so the only school in the U S where you could study the arts and do academics was North Carolina school of the arts. So I went there like Mm -hmm. first year of high school and graduated from there. So 
that, you know, and then summers were New York. And, right. Uh, yeah. right. What was, what was some of your training like, um, there at North Carolina school of the arts when, when you were there during your time? Oh, it, I mean, the, the, the big thing is that there was a modern dance division and they mm-hmm. were relegated to the basement and we were not even allowed to go look at them. I mean, wow. the, the, you cannot imagine how intense the war was really? the, the sense of betrayal of, you know, going from ballet to modern. So, you know, I was a ballet dancer with Balanchine first and his Geneva company. And I decided I wanted to do something more of my time. I felt like an imposter in a tutu, even though I loved, you know, the leotard ballets. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So I came back to New York, you know, and took classes with Cunningham, became a Cunningham dancer. And then I started choreographing and combining the two. So I was right. essentially persona non grata in the ballet and the modern world, because this was just ethically so taboo in people's mind. That's so so interesting. I was really, I was thinking about it in, in terms of that, that transition to modern, that that must've been, I, I could imagine people that have like seeped themselves in that tradition, their whole lives are looking at like a ballet dancer coming in and being, you know, skeptical and, sure. um, but I didn't even think of the other way too, that like everyone, that everyone skeptical. For, for ballet, they would, yeah. Except of course, for some people who like innovation, who like, you know, pushing boundaries. So you know, they, those people were luckily on my side. Right. Uh-huh. I would say in the New York world in particular, I was really a black sheep. I mean, Europeans love it, but <laughs> very suspicious. <laughs> well, let, let's talk a little bit about how you got over to Europe. What, what was that coming out of school? Um, did you have a, a, other ideas or options of where you wanted to dance? Or was Geneva really um, just the, the first thing on your mind? You know, it's so strange. As a child, I was just absolutely determined that I was going to dance with Balanchine. That was just like mm-hmm. my ideal. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of like it was that or nothing. And, you know, I didn't even think of anything else. But essentially what happened was Suzanne Farrell, you know, his beloved Suzanne Farrell got married much to his chagrin and horror. So she left the company and he was so heartbreaking that he kind of took all of us graduating 17 year olds with him to Geneva when he became director. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of just part of the whole flow of things. I didn't really try, you know, Patricia Neary was there all year long. She'd been a principal dancer. So, um, and I did do an audition for her because she didn't know me. But, you know, essentially it was kind of a natural, it was just a natural progression. Right. Can you tell us the story of the kind of how that happened, that Balanchine ended up going to Geneva? Because I think we're not totally clear on that story and how that kind of came to pass. I'm not sure that I know really the details because I was, you know, I was so young. I, Mm -hmm. I presume, you know, he worked his ballets, of course, were being set in Europe, uh, whether it was right. Paris Opera or the Grand Théâtre de Genève or, you know, very, you know, across Europe for sure. And I suppose the director of the Opera House just asked him if he would do it and yeah. maybe right. lucky timing. I don't 
I doubt that he initiated it. I don't really know. Huh. And mm-hmm. how often was he there? Like how much were you guys working with him during your, you were there for two years. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, oh. You know, it, it varied of course, but he would come for every series of performances. He would come and teach class for a while before it and do all of the rehearsals wow. for everything that was on stage, you know, and work with the orchestra, right. work with the lighting, work with us. So, and then he would take us all the girls out to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Wow. <laughs> We'd be like 25, 30 girls, you know, there at dinner eating fondue with Balanchine. <laughs> That's amazing. So wild. What, what was the conversation like at these dinners? Because I, I mean, you're being so young, I, I would be pretty. Oh, he seemed like ancient, ancient, ancient to me. Yeah. <laughs> my age now or even younger um you know he was just incredibly charming uh it was just very you know he's obviously has an incredible incredible knife-like intelligence and severity and rigor but there is a fundamentally mediterranean component to his personality it's like enjoy life eat well see beautiful art, enjoy the day. So, I mean, he, the side I saw of him was always this incredibly charming, elegant, Mediterranean-like person enjoying life. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so I don't remember conversation. It was, you know, it, was it, it was just more like, try casual. this, right? Yeah, it was very casual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He wasn't like giving yeah. you corrections and things at dinner. <laughs> Well, what was it like? What was what was some of the repertoire that you were um, dancing? And my guess is very heavy on the balancing. It was all balancing. Yeah. One, one Giselle once, which was hilarious. But yeah, it was Serenata Four Temperaments and Agon and Love Hall oh. and Piano Concerto Number Two and you know all of those classics. Right. Yeah. Right. And then we did have to do Giselle because we had a tour to Italy, which is, was very conservative dance-wise at the time. So it had to be classical ballet. That's funny. And it was in Nervi, which is a seaside stage outdoors near Genoa. Mm. And it, the Marley gets very, very wet oh. often. And we had Yulanova as the, you know, she was the guest star and Vesilia wow. and Every single person, I think except me, maybe a couple of them, every single person fell, including the stars. <laughs> Just like an oh, amazing. no. So oh, that was a amusing thing. But then we had, you know, my first truly Italian meal afterwards, and it was ambrosia from heaven. Oh. The food I'd ever tasted. That sounds amazing. Right. <laughs> um, I wonder also... Um, who who choreographed the Giselle? Was it just like after Petipa or did Balanchine? There was a guest Russian whose name I'm not going to be able to come up with. That's okay. I was just curious if he played any role in it at all. Balanchine had nothing yeah. to do with that. No. Right. Did you ever <laughs> did you ever consider um maybe trying to go then to New York City Ballet? Was that ever on your radar? What was kind of your next you know, thought? You know, if I had been someone good enough to become, you know, someone that Balanchine choreographed, of course, I would have absolutely wanted to do that. But I had had fairly haphazard training, as you can 
get an idea <laughs> from this lifestyle I was leading. So, you know, I wasn't like one of those kids who at age seven was in ballet class every single day. So I did right. not, I, you know, I wasn't Suzanne Farrell. I wasn't Patricia Neary. Um, and I don't think my body would ever have had, I'm guessing, strong enough turnout. I mean, I have lots of turnout in the air, but underneath me, just the way my hip shot sockets are shaped, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. So it, it is less turned out. So there's a, I just don't think it could ever have been strong enough mm-hmm. to really be at that level. Right. And really, the truth is, I didn't particularly want to be in in the court of ballet in New York City ballet. I was too adventuresome. I I, I just right. you know. Right. So what what made you um, d- decide? I mean, only t- after two years, you're still quite young. What made you take that leap of faith into um, the modern dance world? Yes, I had never heard. I'd never seen modern dance because it was forbidden <laughs> when I was at North Carolina mm-hmm. School of the Arts. And um, I just, you know, you know how it is when you're in ballets. I mean, dancers in general, you have to be very single minded, of course, mm-hmm. to be a dancer, if you're aspiring to the kind of technical level that I always was interested in, which is to use the technology, the body to its fullest extent so that you are free. For me, it was all about being free to do what I wanted and to therefore be expressive and not preoccupied with technical problems. So when I had done that repertoire for a couple of years, and this Swiss friend of mine told me about Cunningham, which I'd never heard of. I thought, well, that sounds really interesting. And so actually the two of us went together to New York and were roommates. And um, I went to the first Cunningham class with my bun. <laughs> I mean, and I think he was pretty astonished because I don't think it had happened before. Huh. And, Pretty soon, you know, that anyone from a real ballet dancer had ever, I mean, who was literally a ballet dancer, because I was at that time. um, And pretty soon thereafter, he asked me, what do you want to do in New York? And I said, I want to dance with you. And then I was in the company. So it wasn't a long time. Wow. Yeah. It's so interesting hearing this trajectory, because of course, now dancers are expected to try their hand at all of these different styles, right? Mm-hmm. It, even in, like at North Carolina School of Arts, I'm sure they do every single style under the sun now, as opposed to how different it was when you were training. So I kind of wonder from your perspective, how you think that impacts this generation being, um, you know, being able to see all these different styles, and maybe being able to decide their trajectory that they want to go. Yeah, that that's an incredibly interesting question. The first thing I would say is I think one of the great things about dance today and New York dancers in particular is the dexterity of speaking so many languages, which, you know, because they really are like, you know, Italian, French, uh, Russian. I mean, you really are speaking different languages and you have to understand the grammar of each and the the philosophy of each. I mean, the way you think about the way you dance completely changes what the dancing looks like. Yeah. And you have to learn to use your gravity in a different way. So I think, you know, that's, that's absolutely fantastic. And 
um, and you know, I also was very interested always in people like Charlie Atkins, who's a huge hero of mine, who was the choreographer for the Motown. He had been a tap dancer, I think, but I've always been really interested in the elegant, um, brilliant phrasing of different dance forms, Bharatanatyam, Charlie Atkins, um, ultimately then it became voguing, all, all of these forms, which I in some ways incorporated, because you know, my what was interesting to me was to combine in a way the poetry and athleticism of ballet with the intellectual side of modern and then the other spices that come from these different practices. Mm-hmm. Right. So I, to me, that just seems like the most natural thing in the world. But of course, I was, again, I was just hated for bringing in elements like street dance or working with Madonna, working with Michael Jackson. All of these things just made the traditional dance world extremely dismayed. So for me, I'm just so amazed when I see or, or read you know, these different dance forums where this is like taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it, for me, I, I, I mean, I really think I paid a big price in terms mm-hmm. of, of being literally attacked for it. <laughs> right. Like I'm that. definitely eager to hear some more details <laughs> about that. But first, let's talk a little bit about this transition into becoming a dancer for Merce. Um, sure, like how sure. did that even, I'm also curious, like what did that feel like on your body? Like yes. that, it's a completely different vocabulary. How how are you finding that adjustment physically and mentally? It it took a lot of work, um, and so I would spend um, when we were on tour. You know, in the beginning, I didn't have that much repertoire because I was an extra person. I wasn't even mm-hmm. replacing someone. So I would really spend, and we were on tour like three, four months a year at least. I right. mean, tour right. was like six weeks long. This was the old days when you used to tour a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I would spend literally hours in the studio by myself trying to understand how to change my gravity so that it was more grounded because that right. was, and I felt like it took me a couple of years to actually learn to do that. I bet. And yeah, it did. It took which is why I'm also, you know, it's great to be fluid in many languages. And I think dancers today are. But for example, when I went early in the early 80s to Paris Opera mm-hmm. to do new choreography at Nureyev's Invitation, I was not about to do Cunningham with those dancers who had right. no idea how to move differently. I felt I had to use the language they know. Sure. Yeah, that makes total sense. Now. You can do. You know, everyone's been cross training, but it, mm. it, you know, it's just not something you can do in a second. It's like learning any language. You have to really dedicate yourself to it. Right. Sure. I also wonder too, like going from Balanchine, who is famously so musical and then going to Merce Cunningham that has a much different relationship with the music. What was that like for you? That is a, that question also is really interesting. It was incredibly natural. I mean, I didn't think twice about it. Oh. But the other thing that was interesting is when I did go to Paris Opera and worked with Sylvie Guillem and Elizabeth Plateau, these were like the, you know, the young principal dancers. Mm-hmm. I did not dance to music. I did use, you know, their training, but for them also, the, the rhythm of the body is so natural. I think to people who 
dance well, that there for them also, there was no problem. That oh, is a right. very natural instinct, I think. Huh, I, I think that's, that's fascinating that you're able to, like you have that limited time in, at the Paris Opera. So you can't like, you know, build a house in however many weeks, you know, but you can, you can introduce that one component of Merce's work that they will kind of more naturally understand right away. I didn't know that it would be that natural for them, but it was instantly mm-hmm. obvious. The right. other thing to say about Cunningham mentally is, you know, he never spoke to us. He never gave a correction. Actually, I was in the company for five years. And in five years, he said two sentences to me. And uh, one is you need more tensile strength. And the other one was, thank you for the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So that, I, th- that's a big different from, difference from ballet, where people are looking at your alignment and helping you to make sure you're, you know, staying. Because, you know, the body distorts, obviously, when you're performing. But right. what I loved about it was that it made you so incredibly independent and you had to rely on yourself. You had to figure everything out for yourself. And that, that of course, is a great life lesson. So they're both, they're both right. valuable. Yeah. Interesting. So at what point did you um, start to feel like you had a choreographic voice that you wanted to put out there? What were, what were some of your first um, experiments with choreographing yourself? Well, it was it was the same impulse that led me to leave Balanchines. I wanted to do something more of my time to speak to the culture of today. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just felt like once I kind of, after maybe three years with Cunningham, I feel like I really understood what it was. So I wanted to do something more contemporary. So, and I love, and I loved the rawness of rock and roll. i as I said, I'd always brought the street sort of element into the mixture. And that's when punk was happening. And just the delirious, rebellious spirit, you know, that hap- joy of that rebellious spirit was just so innate in me as a rebel type person. And then also, you know, being so young. <laughs> so, you know, and then I thought, oh, well, ooh. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh what do you do? I mean, you know, I didn't know what to do, but I just decided, okay, I'm going to dissolve dance as we know it. So it just went from, you know, holding the body and moving to basically just disintegrating into nothing. So it was kind of like a tabla rasa and it was, um, we had a a punk band that just played some walls of sound every two or three minutes just some blasts and three dancers and the very very thick fake fur pants so (laughs) which you know is like it wasn't about trying to look elegant that's for sure uh and christian markley who's become a famous artist actually designed the costumes and the set so that was interesting. What year was this? Very, very, that was 1978. And it, the piece was called Nuh, which means like, you know, not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how, do, how did things then continue to sort of like snowball into these commissions you have at Paris Opera Ballet, American Ballet Theater? When, when did you start to feel like you started to get um, larger notice within the dance community as a choreographer? Well, that, that was, the, that first piece was just so 
different than anything anyone was doing that, you know, a lot of people took notice mm-hmm. in the dance world. It was all, I mean, the dance world was always small, but it felt like it was even small. I think everything was smaller than like, you know, the art world, everyone knew everyone, all the composers, we all knew everyone. Right. Right. Um, so everyone kind of came and then Eric Bogosian, who was running dance at the kitchen, asked me to do a piece. So that was the first, I guess you would call that commission. Mm-hmm. I did that piece. And then I did a piece in a rock club called Tier 3 with the composer and guitarist Reese Chatham, which was kind of radical minimalism in a way, but, you know, electrified very loud and using the overtone series. So it was very much based on physics because he, he had an incredible ear. He was, you know, a piano tuner among other things. So he tuned in these very strange ways. And then the, this natural overtone series would be produced with what he was playing. It would create these kind of cascades of sound. Very beautiful. So people loved that. And then I expanded that into a piece called drastic classicism that had six dancers and five musicians. Uh, so it was, it was four guitarists and drums. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was, I, as you know, I, I was definitely, as I said, persona non grata in the mainstream dance world. So David White was running what was called dance theater workshop, which is now called New York live arts, but it's the same mm-hmm. building on 19th street. Right. And this was the main, you know, kind of down, there was no choice yet. So this was the central place to perform. And he decided to give me, clearly didn't trust me at all. So he gave me a 10 p.m. slot on four Mondays. (laughs) (laughs) See what you can do with it. (laughs) So I did this piece, Drastic Classicism, and it turned out to be the most perfect situation because it lasted over a month, so every presenter from Europe got to see it. Uh-huh. And the next thing I knew, we had trillions of offers. I mean, just wow. all over, and I decided to quit cutting it because I couldn't do it both. That's so right. cool. Because I, I wanted both for several years. Yeah. Right. It's it's so interesting hearing you talk about how this was so different at the time, maybe even like a little radical. Was there ever a moment? I feel like maybe choreographers, when they're first starting out, they might be thinking about like, what does the audience want to see? You know, kind of making it something that will sell or, you know, before they kind of get into finding their own voice and doing what they want to do once they're a little more established with their name. Did you ever kind of consider that? Or were you just like, I'm going to be me from the get go and I know this is going to work? You know, I was so ignorant and so <laughs> idealistic. I none of those things even crossed my crossed mind. I also thought that a jar, an artist's job is, and I still do, is to question the status quo mm-hmm. and to be yourself. And I never thought about selling. I, I mean, I just just none of that ever literally crossed my mind. I never thought about creating alliances or getting to know people who might be able to help me. I mean, just, I just was so, I grew up in the wilderness. You have to understand. I just had no understanding of right. the world. Worked. I mean, honestly, and I, right. I'm still terrible at it, but, um, <laughs> but I do think, the, I mean, I would say the only thing that really works though, is to have a unique voice. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think you, I mean, th- there's definitely a place for people who do 
kind of nice middle brow dance, you know, folk dancing to classical music or, you know, something mm-hmm. easy to digest. There is a role for that. Right. I think it's easier, you know, it's easier per, for presenters maybe, but it's, it's not what I feel is the role of art. Mm-hmm. And I, as I said, I just was born wanting to be an artist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so once uh, things are getting off the ground, you're, you're basically just running a company full time then. And how, but how are you able to uh, keep those ideals and still be presented, you know, without um, sort of having to kind of cater to more commercial sides of things? Well, in my case... I mean, you, you always have to provoke opportunities in, in a way, you, you know, you have to kind of have your antenna alert to where there is a sympathy to your sensibility. Sure. And I found that in Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could never have survived uh, in the U.S., because it, right. I, I just haven't been, I've, I'm, I've never been really, and still to this day, you know, for example, I cannot get a grant from New York State Council in the Arts, impossible. Right. You know, I, I've just never been someone who's sort of been taken into the fold that mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still plenty of opportunities without that, but it's, it's of course, easier if you do have that. But right. I was able because of two things. One was half of our income came from Europe and the other half came from the incredible generosity of visual artists who would give us work to sell. So essentially there was almost no money that came from dance, the dance. I mean, you know, a few grants here and there, touring in the US I don't know when maybe 20 years ago it started costing so much to tour because it right. didn't cover expenses they used to cover expenses right mm-hmm. anyway you know it's just always you know it's just reinventing all of that mm-hmm. uh, that took a lot of work <laughs> yeah right I'm not sure that's something I've ever really thought about how grants can impact the art that you're seeing, like how you need to, how maybe some places might be adapting what they're going to put on stage in order to get grants. So I find that interesting and how you're just like, no, I'm going to do me. I'm going to do what I'm doing. I have confidence in it and I don't need that, you know? Yeah. Well, I needed it. Believe me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you didn't I, succumb. <laughs> no, because I figured if you're going to be a dancer, it's a vow of poverty. I mean, I just always thought that I've never, and that's fine. I, you know, I'm just not the material girl. So, mm-hmm. and I, yeah, I, I never suffered from that, but, but you do, you do have to accept that that's sure. I, mean, I think we all accept that in a way in New York, but you know, <laughs> particularly in dance, you just have to know that it's going to be hardcore. Right. Mm-hmm. So since you're, <clears throat> you know, you're bucking all these trends and um, you know, very much making your own path forward. How then did you become involved with something that is literally like inherently commercial? You know, the two biggest uh, pop acts of the eighties, um, Michael Jackson and Madonna, like yeah. these icons, how did you, how did you become entangled in that? <laughs> well, I, as I say, I, I've lived a life in dance. I haven't tried to have a career. 
I think mm-hmm. you know, that's a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. And I was, as I said, I was always doing what I believed in, um, you know, starting with the, the punk ballet modern combo and continuing pretty much in that vein. And Madonna was a huge fan from the very beginning. You know, she wow. had, she was very alert. She came to New York to be a dancer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I people don't, people she, don't know that or they forget that like yeah, she Madonna has training. Like, yeah, she was she a dancer. She wasn't going to make it. That's the yeah. truth. <laughs> <laughs> and her talent obviously is for understanding the zeitgeist and knowing mm-hmm. how to present. She, you know, at at the right time. And so for right. years and years, I had been invited by the you know, the ballroom, the voguing community to be a judge. So this was this incredible luck because, you know, because I was this radical downtown figure. So they knew who I was and they invited me. And then I got involved in the ball scene and saw these extraordinary, you know, extraordinary talent of these kids who just had the most intense physicality and musicality and created, I mean, literally brilliant movement i mean you know to me it's like agon a lot of it i mean when it's really good it's as good as you know that masterpiece of the 20th century it's is not of course it's not as long so it's not as sustained and a thing but in short chunks it really has great similarities and mm-hmm. you know in the sense of existential meaning shown through musicality and 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 the body in at its most expansive. So anyway, Madonna, for years and years, we've got to work together. We've got to work together. You know, as, she, as she became famous, we've got to work together. We've got to work together. Well, it just took a, it took a long time. I mean, I don't know if it was a whole decade, maybe. Um, and then she just thought voguing would be the right thing because the my ballet background with that elegance of voguing, the length mm-hmm. of it, all of that seemed like the right um right situation so that she just so i we auditioned dancers in new york and la and that's how it happened and then her brits was no that's not true and then she, i think she told michael jackson she told her brits that's it she told her brits the photographer that yeah michael jackson should hire me that's what it was i still <laughs> think she helped that yeah it's just so funny what i mean it's just just taking a second to reflect on what a life you've led already to this point in the interview. It's like <laughs> you worked up for under Balanchine, Cunningham, then casually, um, you know, happened to choreograph. I mean, it's definitely, it's one of the most iconic dance moments in a video ever. Like, I mean, it's just very casual that you just work <laughs> like, this is the, the way you've kind of gone through all these. And, and I mean, yeah, Who could be more different, Michael Jackson and Balanchine? You know, I don't know. It's just so wild. <laughs> I say it was, it was not intentional. It really wasn't. It was just like, it just, these things just happened. Yeah. Wow. Right. Did you have, um, so for, sounds like, you, you know, you and Madonna had a relationship that, um, you know, an artistic relationship or, you know, similar, um, you know, Madonna was into you for a long time, let's say, but, but Michael Jackson, uh, you were recommended to him. Did you have a lot of interaction? 
oh, well, the rehearsal process was crazy. So yes, okay. <laughs> Here, here's okay. Here's the whole story, but I'm going to try to condense it because it's a long story. Okay. I was in a ballet de Monte Carlo creating a piece there. And, you know, Princess Caroline founded the company in honor of her mother, uh, you know, Grace Kelly. Mm-hmm. I was there choreographing and I get a call. I don't know from who, I don't remember anymore. Somehow they found me there and said, you know, Michael Jackson wants you to come to LA to do this. So I talked to people at Ballet de Monte Carlo and I left like the next day or something because they, they could adjust to me leaving. Then I get to LA and Naomi Campbell is cast as his partner. And I knew Naomi already from, because her mother, yes, dancer, <laughs> her mother, a dancer. she was very serious about dance. So we had a good relationship already. Uh-huh. And then she and I started rehearsing and I did Michael Jackson's part because he didn't show up and he didn't show up and he didn't show up. And we would wait literally like 12 hours a day for him. He didn't show up. He didn't show up. And, you know, we, bodyguards would say, no, he's just not coming today, but there'd be seven bodyguards there. And finally, one day he decides to come and he comes in with probably a 45 year old Aboriginal woman from Australia and a little boy. And yeah, and they watch, they are the ones who are going to vet what we've been doing to see if he likes it. And he does, and he gets up and he wants to try it. Uh-huh. And he does it and he's trying to be me. Well, we were very different dancers. That's funny, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so of course that had to change, but right. he was really game. And um, then he confessed to me that he didn't want to dance with Naomi. He had mm. promised the part to Princess Stephanie of Monaco, Caroline's sister, where I just come from. I mean, it's just like so crazy. Yeah, that is funny. <laughs> that is so wild. And then, anyway, then he stopped coming again. Then finally, he made the head of Sony Pictures his agent, like three of the most powerful people in Hollywood. They wanted to see it before we went out in the desert where we were shooting. And they waited for him for 12 hours because he didn't show up until 4 a.m. And he walked in and no one said a word except Naomi kind of like. And the other crazy thing, I mean, just to finish this gossipy story. I love it. Crazy thing is Naomi was having an affair with Robert De Niro at the time. So he was circling our dance studio in his car. This was the first year cell phones existed. She had a cell phone and he had a cell phone and he was circling and talking to her, but he would never come in. So I was just, this was just like so nuts. Then we go out near the Salton Sea and they have set up probably 250 speakers that are like, six feet tall by four feet wide, making a giant circle where we are going to shoot this thing, then he will not let a single person, like the costume people make, but he won't let anyone on the set except the cameraman. Well, there were like 25 of them yeah. and <laughs> me. And so we were, and the director, which was her Brit. So what they wanted was to make Michael look heterosexually sexy. So I had this megaphone competing with the 250 speakers. And I had to keep yelling things like grab her ass. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this was, it was, it was, 
That's enough. Wow. Even more to this story, but that's enough. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so so how, when did he even end up learning the choreography then? Like on set? Oh, he, he came enough. No, he came, he came enough. enough. Okay. But then just to really, yeah, like on the set to make it go further, I, I just had to keep yelling to, because he would, he didn't, he didn't want to do it with her and he didn't really want to touch her. So I just mm-hmm. had, you know, encourage it. Pushing, yeah. Pushing <laughs> Oh my gosh. What a story. Fantastic. I love it. (laughs) Did did you continue to, um, you know, find opportunities like that, that were in like such a commercial sphere or did that kind of, did that maybe put you off a little bit? (laughs) No, none of it put me off. I did a few more of things that are less well known. Like the Divinals was an example when Australian band was very hot for a while. I did several, but only people came to me because I didn't, you know, what you're doing is you're making the star look great. It's not about the choreography. I mean, it's, right. it's, you're making a product. I mean, it's just not where my heart lies. So mm-hmm. right, right, right. Thing, I would do it. And I did love Michael Jackson. He was such a sweet person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think he was just so tormented, but he was adorable. He was a, a dream to work with. Mm-hmm. Gentle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. talk about uh, your company, Armitage Gone Dance. Tell us what I know that there was like kind of a few iterations, maybe of the company. When did this particular iteration um, come to fruition? Yes, well, it was you know in in the nineties, during which time I did both Vogue and Michael Jackson piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the director of the ballet company of Florence, Italy. So I had forty five dancers there. Wow. So that was another, that's another whole extraordinary chapter because I was literally, you know, in a theater that had been built, you know, in 1450. I mean, you know, and, and we did everything from the most classical ballet to Richard move. I mean, we just mm-hmm. did a huge amount of, you know, variety of repertoire. Um, so in the nineties, I was, living in Italy. And then after that, I became the resident choreographer for a company in France. Yes. If I've got this timeline, right. Yeah, that's pretty much right. And kind of dipping my toes back into New York because I really didn't do anything for like 15 years in New York. Not much, not right. much. Right. And so, but it felt like, okay, New York is changing. They're actually ready for what I would call contemporary dance, which is what I do combining ballet and modern. Well, I'd started that a long time ago, but it was <laughs> Anyway, but I, I could see that the mentality had changed. And I'm talking about the critics. I'm talking about the people who have power. Sure. I, right. I'm not about dancers. Dancers were always ready. Mm-hmm. Um, but I tested the waters and it, it was good. So I decided to really come back. I'd been in Europe for 15 years. I wanted to work with New York dancers who just go further than anyone because life is so difficult. You have to go further, <laughs> but also because there's such uh, I think such history here. I mean, everyone has seen the greatness of New York city ballet, the greatness of Bram, the greatness of Richard move, the greatness of street dance. I mean, you know, you just look mm-hmm. across so many spectrums, all kinds of ethnic dance. I mean, everyone is aware of these folk and classical traditions from around the world. And it just makes, it expands your mind and it, pushes you to go to the hilt. Mm-hmm. Right. And the dext, as I say, the, the, the fluency in many languages was really becoming true in New York in ways right. that was not true in Europe. 
so I wanted to come back so that I could, you know, continue pushing myself to think about dance in the most expansive kind of way of what the body can do and what kind of meaning can come through this purely physical uh, experience. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I really, we started rehearsing pretty much in 2003. I think the first performance was 2004. So that's kind of the official date right. that we started. And it's been, you know, like a 20 year, very intense and wonderful time. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the upcoming performances at New York Live Arts? It's March 16th through the 19th, and when you'll be presenting a Pandemic Notebook. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the various works we'll see and what the sort sure. of inspiration is? This, yeah, this, you know, uh, the pandemic hit. We had a couple of pieces ready to be performed. We were going to run a big festival at our studio um, every weekend for several weeks. And I had invited something like 25 companies to participate. Everyone was doing work pieces. And it was, you know, it was everything from, I mean, it was every kind of dance in kind of in the tri-state area. So there was Indian classical dance and there was Panamanian folk dance and there was tap dance. And there was, you know, there were street kids who were interested in modern, who kind of made this, I mean, just fascinating form that they invented themselves. I mean, there was, you know, and more established contemporary companies that we all know. Um, and of course that went by the wayside. And then I, I just became a zombie. Uh, I just did not know what to do. I mean, it was just so radical to suddenly have your life just taken away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, but after eight or nine months, I sort of woke up and I had, streamed maybe 25 films from the New York Film Festival because they were online. Mm-hmm. And actually five of them, I think there were five, were feature films that had not one single word of dialogue. So they oh, wow. exactly like dance. Right. The mm-hmm. metaphor of interactions between people, landscape, connections, but nothing spoken. And that just really made me think, you know, there is something interesting to do uh, with screen dance, not trying to imitate a performance, but making a form that is literally a visual art form and using cinematic techniques. Mm -hmm. So first I decided to do one with myself because I was the only person available. I had no (laughs) intention of dancing again. Sure. I realized I was I was in Colorado. I was not, you know, where I'd grown up, not far from Jock Soto, who mm-hmm. had returned to his native New Mexico because, you know, he's Navajo. He went back to New Mexico after he left New York City Ballet. And I said, why don't we just do something? And because we had already started a project in principle that he was going to dance with my company, but that disappeared like everything else with COVID. Anyway, so t- we we rehearsed in New Mexico and we shot in these extraordinary wilderness locations in in new mexico then i just said okay i'm just gonna i'm gonna go into a bubble and i'm gonna make some things that are even more radical really really made for the screen and all of this is done with i you know just with iphones by the way uh so with my company we went into bubbles and created with fisheye lenses and iphones these very surreal very strange uh dances that are mostly filmed from underneath dancers. So it's like a point of view of the body you have never, ever seen. 
Mm -hmm. And also kind of time feels sort of distorted because if we were using gimbals, you know, in other words, things to keep the camera steady. Right. So they're moving also. So the whole sense of time is Mm. quite different than normal physical time. Yeah. Anyway, so we made the, we've, and then we use green screen for others so that, you know, you can put any background on both the floor or wherever you want it, if you shoot on green, so that there are also these kind of interactive uh, green screen dances. Anyway, these are all like half edited, but not finished. So they can all be done live as well. So we are showing the two dances that got canceled by the pandemic, several that were um, made for the screen. And we're going to see the live version. (laughs) Yeah. That's and so then one, yeah, and then one other one that's interesting because I was an MIT Media Lab uh, director's fellow, and I met this wonderful engineer, a woman named Agnes Cameron, and she devised this whole technology that the dancers can put on uh, these accelerometers, and that creates a soundscape. Oh wow! Really cool. And we were going to actually, and we had even tested it. This happened like right before the pandemic. We tested it so that all every the audience's cell phones would become the speakers, and we actually made it work. Pandemic hit. She goes back to England where she's from. So then I had to learn to do the technology, which was a stretch. (laughs) But I could not learn. She didn't even try to teach me how to do making personal cell phones become speakers, but we are going to do the, um, the live real time, uh, soundscape. Cool is that? Very cool. Wow. So what, what does this, um, mean to you or, or, um, what are the, the emotions surrounding your return to stage after more than three decades? (laughs) (laughs) That's the emotion. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I hope I can do it. It's such a, you know, I'm, Honestly, both Jack, Jock and I are terrified. We're miserable. We're just devastated by the stupidity of our decision. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we so enjoy doing it. And I, you know, I just hope it will be enjoyable. It's for me, I'm just worried about it's a very different mentality, you know, to dance as opposed to being the person in charge of everything. It's right. like just a different part of the brain. I just, I just hope I can somehow switch between the two so that I can have a good time performing. Right. I, mean, I feel, you know, I can't, obviously I can't dance like I used to, but it's, it's, you know, it's pretty good. I mean, I think, <laughs> um, I think most people my age can't even do like even half of what I'm able to do. So I figured, you know, I might as well do it one last time. Yeah. Right. Enjoy it. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you you and Jock are both such icons of the New York dance community. I think everyone in New York is just excited that you're both going to be back. I mean, that's that's what's really great. It's it's a two for one deal. I mean, because <laughs> yeah. Jock also has not been um, performing in New York. I, I was at his retirement show. We were just talking oh, yeah. about it yesterday because he did five ballets in his retirement show. Five. I know. So if now he can do that, like, I'm sure he can make it now. <laughs> now we're doing like five minutes. <laughs> I'm curious how you have adapted some of these film elements uh, for the stage, because of course it sounds like a lot of maybe the choreography that you guys put together had, had cinematography in mind. So how have you kind of adapted that and changed what the audience will see? 
you know, this is a real um, chicken and egg question. Yeah. (laughs) In a way, we needed the dance in order to know where to put the camera. Sure. So, I mean, also, that's what I know, I think, you know. Mm -hmm. So we would start with dance phrases and then as the camera was moving, then adapt them as we looked to the, at the camera. So it's kind of like a back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course you can stop and start when you're doing that. Right. But also for the dancer's sake, I wanted to do that as little as possible because the joy of dancing is the momentum of energy and rhythm. And when you stop and start, you don't ever really dance your best. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. no, cinema and dance are completely incompatible. Right. So except for one of them, I made it possible, like by using one tripod and taping you know, like four iPhones on it so that you could get all different angles at once. I mean, you know, just doing things that would make it, work for the dancers to be able to blast it and right. dance well. So a lot of it was already automatically ready to be done live. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we just hope that everyone in New York comes out to support you. And um, I certainly am going to make the effort to, to come on over and see you guys. It sounds really exciting. And um, thanks so much for talking to us, Carol. It was, it was such a journey. Yeah, so fun. <laughs> so fun. Well, I'm, I really enjoyed this. And yes, I do hope uh, people come. I mean, we need support. Dance has been hit so hard and mm-hmm. you know, it, it is an ecosystem. You don't want to dance if there isn't an audience. So right. thank you for doing this. And I look forward to seeing you. Thank of you. course.